As announced uh, last night, uh, this morning, there will be our instructions on mindfulness during the formal sitting meditation, instructions on mindfulness during formal walking meditation, as well as mindfulness during uh, general activities will be given. And then in, in addition uh, to these, a few things will be said about uh, the interview process as well as uh, some recommendations with regard to uh, uh, attitudes towards practice. Now, I'll try to give uh, these instructions as precisely as uh, possible. What we will follow here are uh, the meditation instructions as given by the late Venerable Mahasisada of Burma. In terms of the sitting posture in our sitting meditation, the texts speak of sitting in full lotus. However, not everyone can sit in this posture for too long. And hence, if this posture is not convenient for you, then you could choose to sit in the half lotus posture, which means that one foot will be placed on the thigh of the opposite leg. You could consider alternating the way you place your legs from one session to the next. If sitting in half lotus also proves to be somewhat difficult, you might consider sitting in you know, the so-called Burmese posture with one you know, leg, foot you know, being placed in front of you know, the other without certain the two you know, legs you know, being interlocked. Now, some might certainly find sitting in this way also not quite comfortable as yet. You could then consider sitting on a small bench, and several of those benches are around. Or else, if you have some chronic back problems, you've had, let's say, some spine surgery or anything like this, then do feel free to sit on a chair, but with the recommendation not to lean against the backrest, because that will mean less physical effort exerted. With regard to the sitting posture that we adopt, in the end what counts is to adopt a posture that we can maintain comfortably over a longer period of time without developing any major postural pains or aches. Now, in terms of you know, the way of keeping our hands, we can place them on the knees. We might also place them in between the knees, halfway in between, or in the lap with one hand then placed in the palm of the other hand. 
in the end certain any way of keeping your hands is fine when it comes to our the position of our upper body we want to keep this as upright as possible and this for various reasons sitting with an upright back then will and not certainly interfere with the respiratory process will also not to be hard or too hard on the on the abdomen the digestion of the food and will also not certainly interfere with the urinary system sitting in an upright way also uh, will ensure you know, that uh, we do not fall asleep you know, right away. Sitting in a slouched you know, way is more or less an invitation to you know, sleepiness. Once we've found a proper you know, sitting posture, you know, then you know, we mindfully and gently close our eyes and then let the breathing unfold naturally and the emphasis is here on a natural breathing now this means that our breathing at times might be a bit certain faster at other times a bit slower a bit shallower whatever occurs naturally is fine just for us to be aware of it now with a natural breathing we try not to interfere with the breathing process trying to uh, manipulate it or to control it in one way or another now when we have settled into a comfortable posture close the eyes the breathing occurs naturally we then focus our attention onto the abdominal movements so the movements of the abdomen as it rises as it falls when and the rising and falling movement of the abdomen being the primary object in the Mahasista Vipassana meditation so when the rising movement of the abdomen occurs we then focus our attention onto it we briefly label it as rise or rising and then we try to observe this rising movement of the abdomen from its very beginning until through its middle until its very end and the observation of the rising movement of the abdomen needs to be accompanied by a knowing the nature of the predominant characteristics of the rising movement such as you know, the expansion of the abdomen tension as part of the rising process maybe stiffness maybe tightness 
When the fawning movement of the abdomen occurs, we then briefly label this as fall or fawning, and then carefully observe the fawning process from its very beginning through its middle until its very end. While we're observing the fawning movement, we also want to know its nature. By knowing the nature of the phonic movement is meant what are the predominant sensations or characteristics or features or qualities of the phonic movement, such as first maybe a sense of relaxation, an ease, a release of tension, stiffness, tightness, and then possibly more towards the end, a contraction of the abdomen. As sudden, then you know, the next uh, rising movement occurs again, we label it, we observe it, we try to know its nature. And then same thing goes for the falling movement and for you know, the following rising and falling movements. If, however, while observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, a new, more predominant object occurs, such as the wandering of the mind, then this wandering of the mind becomes the next object of observation, which means we let go of the observation of the rise and fall and instead you know, focus our attention onto that new object, namely you know, the wandering of the mind. We then briefly label this as wandering or thinking, and suddenly then we try to you know, carefully observe and know the qualities of the wandering process or wandering you know, of the mind. So when we observe the wandering of the mind or the thinking, then it's important that we do not get lost in the content of our you know, thoughts, the story you know, that you know, the mind is you know, busy with, but rather that we take you know, the thinking you know, process, the wandering of the mind itself, as just another object of observation, and it's a mental object of observation. Should planning occur, then we could label this more specifically as planning and then observe it, know its nature. Or should we find that the mind goes off into the past so it remembers some past pleasant or unpleasant or neutral event, then we label this as remembering and then carefully observe and know the nature of this remembering. Once suddenly the thinking naturally comes to an end, our attention goes back to the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. Should, however, the thinking continue, then we, we simply continue to observe it for a little bit longer, once again not getting caught up in the content of the thinking. Eventually the thinking will end and with this then our attention goes back to the primary object. Then we'll observe the 
rising movement, falling movement of the abdomen for a while until the next most predominant or more predominant object comes up and let us say this time around some pain in the knee is calling your attention. So in this case, we let go of the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. We then shift our attention to this pain in the knee. We focus the attention on it, and suddenly then we label it as pain. We then carefully observe the pain from its very beginning through its middle until its very end, and suddenly we try to know its nature. Knowing the nature of the pain implies first to know its quality, in particular what kind of pain it is. There's a great variety of pains around, and so, so what are we experiencing? Is it a piercing pain? Is it certainly maybe a tearing pain? Is it a throbbing pain or burning pain or a hardness pain? And so on and so forth. We could further explore this certain pain in terms of its intensity. Namely, in the course of the observation of the pain, is the pain intensifying, is it de-intensifying, or is it staying more or less the same? Or it could further be that, let's say, uh, that uh, tearing pain over, um, or in the course of time, gradually turns into a burning pain, in which case we then carefully observe and know uh, this transition. So apart from the quality and the intensity of pain, we might further want to pay attention to its location, where in the body is it happening, and is the pain arising in one spot, and then staying in that spot for a while and eventually ending in the same spot, or is the pain starting in one spot, and then over time, spreading out over a larger area or moving about in various forms and eventually disappearing in a different spot. The time factor, the duration of that pain, might certainly yet be another observational category that we might certainly want to pay attention to. So are we dealing with a long-lasting pain or is this a pain that lasts just a couple of minutes or maybe just a few seconds or even shorter, just a few moments, whatever it might be. We just take notice of it and know what is going on. One of the most basic maxims in terms of the observation of objects is that we always label, observe and know the most predominant object occurring in the body or the mind starting with an observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen at the beginning of one's session. 
So we start out with the rise and fall, and then proceed according to the principle of predominance. If a painter then is the next most predominant object, we pay attention to that. Once that's gone, the attention goes back to the rise and fall. If and Satna, then if some thinking becomes predominant, the thinking becomes the new object of observation, so we're mindful of that. Once that ends, the attention goes back to the rise and fall. If Satna, then let's say happiness arises in the mind, then the happiness becomes the next object of observation. We label it, we observe it, we know it. The same thing goes for all predominant objects that occur at the six sense doors. So this applies then to the internal seeing process, to the internal hearing process, to the smelling process, knowing a taste, observing it, knowing a taste, labeling, observing, and certain knowing tactile objects as well as certain mental objects. And it's usually that we observe one object at a time. Should you be experiencing two or three objects of about the same predominance, then you choose the one that fascinates you most. The Venerasaito Bandita Bivams of Burma strongly recommends that Satna retreatants in the observation of predominant Satna objects keep in mind the following three basic categories, namely the occurrence of an object as the first, then the labeling plus Satna, the observation of the respective object as the second, and Satna number three, knowing its nature. So the knowledge, the understanding part. When it comes to you know, the occurrence of an object, there's not much you have to do in this regard. An object will occur or will arise naturally. Then the second uh, uh, aspect, namely the labeling plus the observation, is as follows. When a predominant object has occurred, then we focus our attention on it, briefly label it, observe it, and, and we try to know its certain nature. Let's say if it is a pain that is lasting for a little bit longer, then again, after a little while, we will label it Satna once again, observe its different Satna quality, observe it from start to finish, and we try to know its qualities, its nature. So these Satna three aspects of the occurrence of an object, 
the labeling plus the observation of the respective object and knowing the nature of Fatna, the object. These do please keep in mind and uh, keep in mind when you observe whatever predominant object comes along. These Satna 3 aspects are also you know, very useful you know, when you know, structuring and Satna reporting you know, during interviews. When we observe predominant Satna objects, a number of fundamental factors are very important to possess and are needed to actually carefully observe and know the nature of the respective object of observation. Among these, we have, first of all, the aiming of the mind, namely focusing the mind onto the respective predominant object of observation. This aiming as a mental factor corresponds to the mental factor of Vidaka. Then effort needs to be applied in the Pali scripture language known as Viriya and with effort our attention gets uh, propelled towards the object of observation. With effort, the mind uh, moves and suddenly then reaches the object of observation. When these two factors, namely aiming and effort, are now present, the observing mind will be in close contact with the respective object of observation. In other words, it will be rubbing the object, and this rubbing of the object then corresponds to a mental factor known in the Pali scripture language as vichara. As a jhanic factor, it is also known as the sustained application of the mind on an object. Now, in the presence of these three mental factors, namely aiming, vitaka, effort, viriya, and satna, rubbing, or vichara and pali, then quite naturally mindfulness will arise and in the presence of you know, these earlier three you know, mental qualities in a continuous subnet manner, the mindfulness will also you know, be uh, continuous and uh, sustained. So then the you know, mind you know, will be aware of whatever uh, is happening with an object. In the presence of uh, good continuity of mindfulness, then the mind over time becomes more and more focused. It will be squarely falling onto the respective object of observation and even be fixed to the object of observation. In other words, concentration is there. Based on concentration or with the help of a concentrated mind, then intuitive wisdom, understanding, knowledge can arise. Now, 
Earlier on, mindfulness was mentioned as one of you know, the factors needed for a successful observation of predominant objects. And um, here, it's not just the mindfulness, but even more so, the continuity of it that is so uh, vital. The more our mindfulness is continuous, the more our practice will unfold or develop. If one's mindfulness is somewhat discontinuous, then it will be weak and constant. The mind will not be all that concentrated and intuitive wisdom will be more difficult to arise. Now, as mentioned earlier on, we want to label the uh, predominant objects that come along. So when the rising movement of the abdomen starts, then briefly we want to label this with a gentle, silent label as rise or rising. The same thing goes for the fawning, the same thing goes for other objects. Now, the labeling does not have to involve a very sophisticated terminology, technical terminology. It is quite enough if you choose the most simple word as a label that for an object, for an experience that comes, that comes up in the mind. With regard to you know, the frequency of you know, the labeling, we want to make sure that it is not too frequent. Otherwise, we will not have enough time to actually observe an object and know its qualities. But we also want to you know, make sure that you know, the labeling is you know, done uh, at you know, uh, well appropriate intervals. So an object arises, we briefly label it, we then observe it, we know its nature. If it is a pain or some other object that lasts longer, then again we will label, we observe it, we know its uh, nature. If on occasion we do miss to label an object, then uh, this is all right. More important, is that we observe and know the quality of an object or its nature. So the ideal is an object of observation comes up, we then label it, we then carefully observe it, and we know its nature. If, however, we miss to label an object, and we also don't certainly observe it properly, then uh, it will be impossible to know the nature of that particular object. Now, maybe this much with regard to, to the instructions concerning the formal sitting meditation. Let us now go on to look at the instructions concerning the formal walking 
meditation. First off, the walking, the mindful walking meditation is as important as mindfulness during the sitting meditation. During both postures, the Dhamma can unfold. During the first few days of a retreat, we want to pay attention to spending an about equal amount of time in the sitting meditation and walking meditation. So if we sit for one hour, then we want to do an equal or spend an equal amount of time in formal walking meditation. Later on, that will change as our practice will deepen. At least it could change. Now, for your walking meditation, please choose a path that is maybe five to ten meters in length. And then make sure that your path for the walking meditation does not crisscross with the path of other retreatants. When it comes to the posture, we want to ensure an upright certain posture of the body and with the eyes focused at a point maybe three to four meters ahead of us. And please do understand that it's not necessary to keep your eyes on the feet as they are actually moving, since this will mean that your head will be tilted forwards and you might end up with a stiff neck. The Venerable Mahasi side of Burma has recommended three forms of walking, formal walking meditation, and the first of these is as the right leg moves, we label it accordingly as right step. As the left leg moves, we label this accordingly as left step. And then, as the right leg moves, we label it. We then carefully focus our attention on the most predominant sensation that occurs in the right leg. So it could be a predominant sensation like numbness in the right thigh, or it could be the bending of the knee, or it could be some sensation in the calf, or some predominant sensation in the foot itself. Wherever that most predominant sensation happens to arise, focus your attention on it. Now, 
So at first you label you know, as the right step, then you focus your attention on the most predominant object, and then the next step involves the careful observation of you know, that uh, process of uh, moving uh, the foot, and suddenly then you want to know the most predominant sensation as it uh, occurs naturally. And then, once the left leg comes into action, we shift our attention to the left leg, and in particular, we then focus our attention on the most predominant sensation that occurs in the left leg. And this certainly then is certainly followed by a brief labeling as left step, and then you know, we carefully observe that most predominant sensation as it occurs somewhere in the left leg. If it's a pain, you know, we you know, carefully observe this and know its nature. If it's hardness you know, in the foot itself, we then you know, observe this and know its nature. So. Let's say we do the formal walking meditation for an hour, then we could spend about 20 minutes on the first type of walking meditation. This form, this first form of walking meditation is already clearly slower than normal walking down a street. Now, after having Engage in this first form of walking meditation, we then, so to speak, shift gears, slow down our walking, and divide one step into two parts, namely the lifting process and uh, the lowering and placing of the foot. At the very beginning of the lifting process, we briefly label as lifting, and then carefully observe that entire lifting process from its very beginning until its very end. And we want to know the qualities, the quality of the most predominant sensation or the movement, whatever strikes our attention. So as you know, the foot, or the, in particular the heel, is slowly coming off you know, the ground, we might notice how you know, the earlier uh, pressure in the heel you know, then gradually uh, decreases. And suddenly then we might notice how that pressure you know, moves to other parts of the foot as suddenly the foot might be moving along the outer edge of uh, outer edge some we might notice some hardness then you know, we observe that we know it and suddenly then again you know, there could be a stretching sensation in you know, the sole of you know, the foot we are, are then 
uh, we observe and note that, and then there might be some pressure in the ball of the foot. And so this too needs to be observed and uh, known, and then there could be all sorts of other you know, sensations occurring as gradually the toes are coming off the ground. And we still want to continue you know, carefully observing, knowing what is happening while the foot is being lifted upwards. Now, at the very beginning of the lowering process, again, we briefly label this as lowering, and Satna then carefully observe the entire process of lowering, placing the foot on the ground, from start to finish. And we want to know the nature of this entire process. In particular, when the foot touches the ground. What uh, is the very first sensation there? Do we experience you know, softness or hardness, smoothness or roughness? Do we experience certain heat or you know, cold? Possibly a gradual increase of pressure is suddenly there, and suddenly then, as the foot gets placed on the ground more and more, you know, the pressure might uh, spread out, hardness might be there, you know, even a pain could be there, and various other you know, sensations are likely to occur and uh, for us to uh, observe and know. Now, after having spent 20 minutes on the second form of walking meditation, and this certain form of walking meditation is done already at a noticeably slower speed than the first form of walking meditation, and our focus is now more on the on the predominant sensations occurring in the foot itself, and no longer uh, on uh, sensations potentially arising somewhere in the leg. Now we change gears once again. We slow down our walking meditation even further, and we then divide one step into three parts, namely the lifting process, the forward movement, and the lowering and placing of the foot. Now, the lifting process and the lowering and placing are, as explained just a few moments ago, the only new addition comes in the form of the forward movement. So as the foot starts gliding through the air, we briefly label this as gliding, as moving, or as forward movement, and then we carefully observe that forward movement from start to finish. And as the forward movement is taking place, we then want we observe and we want to know the the most predominant sensations that suddenly come up, or we want to we might want to pay attention to the type of movement that is occurring. So. What could happen is that at first we don't experience much except for some numbness in the foot. However, we might notice that it's very difficult to keep the 
balance of you know, the posture, which you know, then you know, would be a valid you know, observation of you know, what is certainly you know, happening. Later on, the forward movement you know, will become more uh, more continuous, more you know, balanced, and certainly you know, with this, uh, a number of uh, observations could be made. Now, while we engage in a formal walking meditation, we will try to slow down our walking as much as possible, since slowing down very much gives the mind an opportunity to observe more carefully what is truly happening. And more on this and during some um, Dhamma talk in the near future. Another way of conduct that supports our walking meditation is the restraint of the senses. So even though we have eyes to see with, we do not let our eyes roam about suddenly freely, but rather we keep them at we keep them focused at a point maybe three to four meters ahead of us, and this then will greatly cut back on unnecessary sense sudden distractions. It will help Putner to calm down the mind. It will help Putner the mind to become more concentrated and that in turn will help the arising of intuitive wisdom. Now the restraint of the senses is not limited to only restraining the eyes, but it also, also involves or covers the restraint of the ears. So even though we might be hearing some predominant sound somewhere, there's no need to go and explore that right away. But instead, we just label it briefly as hearing, we observe it, know its nature, and then our attention returns to the formal walking meditation. Now, restraint of the senses also includes that we restrain especially the movements of our arms and hands and not let them fly around in a somewhat uncontrolled manner. So either we keep our hands in front of the body or behind the body. And this will very much help the mind to remain focused. Now, please certainly do understand that the formal walking meditation 
is uh, quite different from ordinary walking outside of an intensive mindfulness satna retreat. Outside of a retreat, we tend to have a clear destination that we try to reach, whereas in formal mindful walking meditation, the emphasis is not on getting any to any particular place, but rather the focus is on training in mindfulness during each of these different movements in the walking. And to then also know clearly what is happening. Now, the next area to be explored further is the area of mindfulness during general activities. The principles mentioned earlier on, namely continuity of mindfulness, labeling the respective activity, and Satna then carefully observing and knowing what's, uh, knowing the nature of uh, the respective activity, those principles are uh, the same. And so we just try to apply those to our general activities as much as possible. So the mindfulness Satna then or should certainly be extended mm, from the process of waking up early in the morning to then include all the major or even minor activities as satna they occur throughout satna the day except for formal walking and formal sitting meditation because we've covered satna those already. Now, in the course of a day, we might find ourselves engaging in many different activities. Some of those major general activities would be things like taking a meal, breakfast, lunch, drinking some juice in the afternoon. Now, when it comes to the a meal, then we want to be very mindful of this process of, let's say, scooping some food, being mindful of the arm being brought towards the mouth, if an intention is certainly present preceding this movement. We want to be, we want to label this, we want to observe it, we want to know its nature. Then, as the movement itself is occurring, we want to be mindful of that, we want to know its nature. Then, the process of opening the mouth, the process of placing the food, the morsel of food into the mouth, and certainly then withdrawing the utensil from the mouth, placing it back onto the plate, and then this entire process of chewing the food and eventually swallowing it. Now, in chewing 
of a morsel of food, much is involved. We could certainly pay attention first to the visible impression before putting the food into the mouth. We could further pay attention to the smell experience, what kind of smell goes along with the food. And certainly then, as the morsel of food has been placed in the mouth, what about certainly the taste? There are so many different tastes around, and so it's worth discerning between one taste experience and another taste experience. What about the temperature element? When you first put a morsel of food into the mouth, it could be that it's still pretty hot, and then as you're chewing the food gradually, the heat subsides, it turns into warmth, from there into a lukewarm sensation, and maybe eventually into a cooler temperature experience. Then, what about the texture of the food? What about the different sensations in the mouth itself as you're chewing the food? What about the juiciness of the food? So, there's so many things that could be observed and known during mindfulness, during mindful eating. So, mindful eating is very different from our ordinary way of eating when we simply just put some, toss some food into the mouth and then quickly gobble it up. Now, when drinking a cup of tea or a glass of juice, there too, much is there that could be observed. For seeing or being mindful of reaching for the cup, holding the cup, the sensations involved in this, then the intention to bring the cup towards the mouth, being mindful of that, being mindful of the entire process of moving the cup towards the mouth, the cup then touching the, the lips, and certainly the sensations involved at that point, the temperature at that point, the quality, smoothness, roughness of uh, the surface of uh, the cup on uh, the uh, lip, and certainly then the liquid certainly being gradually, carefully being poured into the mouth, and all the sensations that go along with this. So there too is uh, there's much that could be explored. Now, other general activities encompass activities such as the opening and closing of a door. This we do not want to do in an automatic way, in a mechanical way, but we want to be fully mindful of the entire process. And depending on the prevalent mind state at times, we might find ourselves certainly slamming a door, and certainly at other times, in the presence of great mindfulness and calmness of mind, we might observe and and come to know that the way we close the a door then is quite different. Now, 
at the beginning of a sitting session or at the end of a sitting session before after a Dhamma talk when bowing we might pay very close attention to the bowing process itself there too plenty of sensations will occur in the back as the head is bowing down towards moving down towards the floor and Satna then to be uh, mindful of this and Satna the mental activity that goes on at that Satna point sensations in the hands when they touch the ground and so on and so forth Mindfulness ideally should not be limited to public spaces so to our to practice here in the meditation hall or taking meals in the dining hall and so on but we want to make it a point to be very mindful when we are in our room so please do not leave the mindfulness or drop the mindfulness the moment you cross or the moment you enter into your room Mindfulness of general activities is an area where we need to be very creative and make or discover for ourselves with regard to the various activities what is truly going on. So there's some room for improvement here all the time. If we think we've observed it at all, we know everything, well, there will probably still be some area that we don't pay too much attention to. Slowing down of activities as well as certain restraint of senses is equally or is important not only to you know, the formal walking meditation, but also you know, very much applies to you know, the general activities. Now, allow me to say just a few words about the interview process. So we'll have uh, you know, regular you know, interviews Mondays uh, through Fridays. And the very first uh, step uh, uh, consists in writing down uh, your experiences after a formal uh, sitting meditation and walking uh, meditation or some experience uh, from a general activity. But please do refrain from writing down your experiences uh, in the meditation hall. Do this uh, rather uh, uh, once you've uh, left uh, the hall so as not to disturb the other retreatants to help to keep this meditation hall as quiet as possible. Those of you who have an excellent memory, who have no difficulty remembering tiny, tiny little details, well, then the writing will not be necessary for you. 
Now, when you come into you know, the interview room in the council building, then please try to be very mindful. This is part of your meditation practice, the way you come in. And just by observing a retreat and coming in, a teacher can already make some educated guess about what is going on in a retreatant's practice. When you give your report, please try to keep your report short and to the point, try to be as accurate and precise as possible. If there are certain experiences that keep happening again and again, then it might be quite enough to mention such an experience just once and maybe add that it's also happened on other occasions. Now, when you report, please start to report on your sitting meditation and here start your report with a description of what happened during your or while you were observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen, so the primary object. And then please do remember to structure your report by mentioning the occurrence of the respective object, how you label the object, and then how you observed it, and whether and what you've come to know about the nature of the object. When you give your report, please use simple, straightforward language. There's no need to use some polytechnical language. Make sure that suddenly you report according to fact and not certain from imagination. There's no need to please suddenly your teacher. And even if a particular sitting session was very difficult for you, well, if that was the most predominant experience or that best reflects your practice, then just report that, and that might be very good nonetheless. When you give your report, please try to refrain from evaluating your own practice, such as coming in and saying things like, I think my practice is going very well, my concentration is certainly greatly improved, and so on. But rather, just give a report of what really happened, and suddenly then it becomes obvious, or it will be will be obvious for a teacher, whether your practice is going well or not, whether concentration is present or not, and the quality and what the quality of the mindfulness is like, and so on. Now, 
when you give your report, please do consider that these interviews are meant, very much meant, to support you and your meditation practice. And as such, there's no need to get nervous when giving your report. The teacher is there to support you, to give you uh, encouragement, you know, to help with explanations, to give advice, some you know, recommendations, and uh, if you know, some obvious uh, well you know, misunderstanding is there or some uh, you know, mistake is certainly you know, there, then this will be uh, pointed out. So the Having almost certain daily interviews usually has a galvanizing effect on a retreatant's practice. And so, uh, on top of this, uh, an interview, giving a report uh, during an interview offers an opportunity to receive you know, some valuable advice. And with that certain advice, uh, in uh, your uh, mind, uh, or with that advice, you take it uh, back into your uh, practice and then you try to apply it as best as you can. In order to save on time, usually what I do is that's about two minutes before the retreatant who's currently you know, reporting ends his or her report and the advice is given, I will ring the bell and thus request the next meditator to come in. So there will be a short overlap between the first meditator who is finishing off his or her report and the next meditator already coming in. And this is just to save on time. Otherwise, if one retreated where I have to leave and then only the next one comes in yeah, then uh, yeah, this uh, if we multiply this by yeah, 20 22 retreatants it uh, amounts to quite a bit now during the first few days of a retreat Retreatants are likely to experience a number of difficulties, very common difficulties, such as sloth and torpor comes up, many of you might still be jet-lagged, or you might certainly find, even though you have the greatest intention to keep your attention with the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and yet the mind does wander off. It goes into you know, thinking and sadness, so it's not really with the object of observation. So having to deal with that is not that easy. You might also come across sadness, some pains and aches in the body. You might find this to adhere to the schedule quite difficult. Having to get up early in the morning might be challenging, and some. So based on all of these initial difficulties, some discouragement might arise in the mind. Well, that's part of the practice, and the instruction for this would be 
to label it, to observe it in an objective manner, and then to know its nature. And the discouragement, probably sooner than later, will disappear, and you'll be quite okay. Now, allow me to say a few more words about our attitude towards the practice itself. Overall, we want to observe objects with a calm and certain detached attitude, with a mind that is relaxed, but not in the sense of being casual or easygoing, but the opposite of being tensed up, all tight, set all tight, and yet we want to ensure that the mind is alert. So balance in our attitude is an important quality, and I'll say more about this. Now, on occasion, it happens on retreats that retreatants get dehydrated. So please do make sure that you drink a fair amount of water and certain teas, certain juices, whatever is available. Min a minimum of two liters later on in June, as it gets certain warmer, you might want to drink even more than this. Then, on occasion, a retreatant might be eating very little or decide to eat less and less or even you know, take it to you know, the point of wanting to fast. This we do not encourage. Intensive vipassana meditation very much requires that a retreatant eat a moderate amount of food to provide the body with nutri nutrition and strength. And that satna then is a prerequisite for uh, the mindfulness satna work. Now, Please also be careful around constipation. Should you find yourself suddenly being constipated for three or even more days, then do something about it. Tackle it as soon as possible, either by taking some natural laxatives or by doing certain exercises that suddenly induce a bowel movement. If this doesn't help, then ask for advice. Now, when it comes to sleep, it's important that we sleep well and in the course of an intensive meditation retreat, the need for night sleep will fluctuate at some certain you know, points in time. It uh, might be lessening. At other times, we might certainly find and a need for more sleep. However, please, it is not recommended that you deliberately deprive yourself of sleep or willfully practice through the entire night when it's not really, uh, uh, your practice doesn't really allow for it. 
If you were to do this, you might certainly bring unwanted results onto yourself. On occasion, a retreatant might certainly find himself or herself pushing through excruciating levels of pain. And should a pain become excruciating, please do feel free to change your sitting posture, but do so by first labeling the intention to change your posture, then be mindful of this change of posture, and do it slowly and observe it mindfully. Now, on occasion, new retreatants are of the opinion that thoughts should absolutely not arise during the Pasna meditation, and this is clearly a wrong assumption. Instead, and the Vipassana approach with regard to thoughts is that suddenly they need to be included as objects of observation. So you simply focus your attention on it, you label it accordingly as thinking, as wondering, as remembering, and so on. And suddenly then you want to observe it carefully, you want to know its nature. When the thinking subsides, then your attention goes back to the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. As our practice will deepen and our mindfulness will sharpen, we'll find that gradually the mind will calm down and there will be times when there will be less certain of thinking going on. When you sit in meditation, please practice according to your ability. And if at first you find it very difficult to sit for an entire hour, well, then just then be as patient as possible and know that as the days go by, the body or the muscles of the body will loosen up more and more and this then will gradually permit you to sit for longer stretches of time. Now, there's certain ways we can make our, our lives as certain retreatants on a retreat rather miserable. And among those, we have putting excessive pressure on ourselves by entertaining high expectations in terms of attaining the Dhamma or by competing with our fellow retreatants, even though we don't even know what their practice is really all about. Or we might certainly set ourselves certain standards and suddenly then thinking I should be having such and such kind of experiences, I should be able to sit for an hour and a half or two hours, but I can do only 45 minutes. Uh, so things of this kind. 
So please, any kind of putting pressure, excessive pressure on yourself, comparing mm, comparing you know, yourself you know, to other retreatants, competing with others, expectations or setting standards, shoulds and oughts, please be mindful of those. Label them, observe them and know them and satna, then uh, eventually they will uh, subside. Some retreatants at times try to exercise complete control over unwanted states of mind, which of course is not realistic. Try to observe unwanted states of mind with an allowing attitude. On occasion, there are retreatants, few of those, who push up the mind beyond, or far too hard, beyond its certain limits, into states of extreme fear, worry, guilt, self-judgment, and the like. Please keep your practice balanced should you be experiencing extreme levels of fear, depression, anxiety, elation, hyperactivity and the like. Kindly inform your teacher without delay or contact Satna, the uh, yogi support Satna staff who will be ever ready to assist you. Now, as mentioned Satna, earlier on, we want to observe predominant objects with a calm, detached, and relaxed Satna state of mind, a mind that is Satna relaxed and Satna yet uh, keeping it alert. And also ensuring that the way we practice is as balanced as Satna possible. The Buddha has spoken of the middle path. The Buddha has always uh, recommended uh, the balance of uh, uh, practice rather and uh, warned against uh, uh, any form of uh, extremes in uh, the meditation practice. So this then almost brings us to the end of these additional instructions for mindfulness in formal sitting meditation, mindfulness in formal walking meditation, instructions related to the general general activities, some advice with regard to the interviews, and then some more advice on attitudes towards the practice. Allow me to just uh, mention one more point, namely, we have a trim. We're extremely fortunate, first of all, you know, to have the opportunity to do this Satna retreat. So the opportunity to get away from you know, from a job, you know, from a job, from temporarily from our families, from our friends, and Satna so on. And we have the further. Mm, fortunate opportunity of Fatna being here at the Forest Refuge that Satna offers ideas.
ideal no conditions for intensive practice. There are not too many places around in the world where you have this kind of support. So keep the preciousness of, or be aware of the preciousness of your own retreat as well as the retreat location. Keep that in mind. And then in the course of this six-week retreat, please do apply yourselves wholeheartedly to the practice and you will not regret it. And with this, um, and, and then, so allow me to f- conclude by wishing, may this six-week retreat here at the Forest uh, no, Refuge you know, be a fruitful retreat uh, uh, for all of us. And this is it for now. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.